This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello and welcome back to First Act, a podcast from Koshy's Business Builders. I'm Seth Busby. And I'm Adam Bubb. Thank you for joining us today. Now, First Act is your weekly deep dive into the wild and wonderful backstories of Australia's most fascinating founders. That's right. So no success is made overnight unless you win the lotto. One can dream. (laughs) On this podcast, we've heard how a pub baron built a $100 million empire, how a surfer created a bin that's collected 3.4 million kilos of waste from the oceans, and even how to build a social enterprise based on going to the loo. Now, I encourage you now to dig through our First Act archives for all of those episodes. There's some great listens in there. They're enlightening, to say the least. Now, let's meet today's enlightening guest. (laughs) Zara Cooper is one of two Melbourne mums behind Paper Crane, the minimal style shoe brand that brings the street to you and your kids' feet. A former corporate lawyer, Zara came to entrepreneurship later in life. She was actually a customer of Paper Crane when she approached co-founder Kate Corleason with a proposition to grow the brand from its baby shoe niche into a global footwear company. Six years later, and Paper Crane has expanded from booties to children's shoes and adult footwear, and it's now stocked as far afield as the US, Europe and the UAE. Along the way, she's up the ante on Paper Crane's sustainability and social responsibility, donating thousands to charities like Minus 18 and the Olivia Newton-John Foundation. She's also had quite the personal journey along the way, but we'll probably get into that a little bit later. So, Zara, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, Zara, we always start our first act with a first act icebreaker. Your icebreaker question for today is, if you had to show a visitor around your home city of Melbourne, what would your top three must-visit places be? Oh, God, I'm actually embarrassed to say that all three are eateries. What does that even say about me? Um, <laughs> I I just think Melbourne's food is what stands out so much about us. And I went to such an amazing place last night. It's called Rice Queen. It's such a cool, it's like this really awesome Asian fusion restaurant. And at the back, it has this random little karaoke room and you just go in and sing karaoke and have amazing cocktails I just think that's what Melbourne's all about. You know, every place has like some other random place attached to it and you never know where you're going to end up. But I would say, I mean, overall, other than food, I think there are three areas that any visitor has to see and that would be St Kilda, especially in the summer, you know, the beaches, the cafes, just the whole, I don't know, the whole atmosphere of the place. Even when you're a local, you feel like you're on holiday when you go there and as is sort of, I love Brunswick Street. I love Fitzroy. And oh God, it's a tough, it's a tough call between, I think I'm going to go South Yarra for the third place. So Chapel mm. Street. Oh, that's where and, I always stay yeah. when I'm in Melbourne. <laughs> I always love it there. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's awesome. You just walk all you want, I guess, when you're a tourist is a place where you can just 
let loose, walk, and there's just stuff that comes to you on your journey. So I, I guess those three places would be the ones that I'd go to. Plenty of eateries on in all of those locations. Yeah, checking it out. exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I could, I could, I could honestly talk all day with you about amazing places in Melbourne to go eat. But we're here to talk <laughs> about your first act, and, and let's get let's get cracking. You initially started your career journey as a lawyer. What was it that drew you to law? Um, so basically, when I studied commerce and law, I absolutely loved it. Like I couldn't understand why you had to get such high marks to get into law. It just made so much sense to me. It just, I don't know, it really spoke to the way I thought, the way I communicated. And with commerce, I majored in marketing and it was the same thing there. Just the, I just, I absolutely loved what I was studying. So I was completely convinced that this is my calling. I'm supposed to be a lawyer. And um, I managed to secure articles at a top tier corporate law firm, which is, you know, living the dream as a law student. And it was only really once I got there that I realized quite quickly that practicing was a whole different story. And it just stood out to me even back then, um, you know, mainly for a couple of reasons. One was that I'm the way that I'm wired is I have a really domineering entrepreneurial and creative side. And I just felt like that was really thwarted um, as a corporate lawyer. I really just felt like a small cog in a large machine that I couldn't relate to and didn't really mean anything to me. Um, and at the same time, I I had my first child when I was 25 and that's pretty much career suicide. Well, it was back then career suicide in a, you know, in the law firm I was at and just became really clear that I'd sort of um, a, never really be supported or taken seriously and B, um, I'd never be able to have the kind of work-life balance that I sought because as much as I wanted a meaningful career, I also wanted to be there with my children and for my children while they were growing up. And, you know, the dream was to find a career that could work hand in hand with motherhood. Hmm. Was that also one of the reasons why you decided to go out on your own and start your own firm? Yeah, exactly. So that what the, basically those two reasons. So that sort of feeling meaningless. Um, when I started my own firm, we we had a niche. We specialised in corporate immigration. So we were working with high, highly skilled and high level professionals and helping them, you know, helping companies to bring them over here to Australia. And what I loved about that was it still spoke to you know my love of corporate law. But it also, you know, I owned the file. I worked on it from beginning to end. The outcome meant something to me and belonged to me. And I'm still in contact with so many of my former clients these days who are like, thank you. Like I have three kids now and we live here and we love this country and we're so grateful to be here. And, you know, that's what I felt. I felt like at least what I was doing was meaningful and I had a personal connection with it. Mm. What do you think you learnt from that experience business-wise? Well, I guess, yeah, that was my first foray, you know, into the ins and outs of running a business, you know. Um, so it wasn't just about law anymore. It was about accounting, bookkeeping, marketing, expenses. It, it, that was just sort of, you know, I I loved all of that though. I loved, again, it was like it kind of felt like, I don't know, strangely it felt like I was 
You know, when you're back at school and you're doing or at uni and you're doing this like semester long assignment and you're working with friends and you're just loving every minute and you're living in this fantasy land, that's how I felt. I was like, this is cool. This is like my partner and I, we're we're doing this school project. That's how it felt. And we're learning all these new things. And um, I loved it. It just felt like something meaningful and this whole new experience that was really dynamic and fun. And there was always something new to focus on. Now, Paper Crane, I believe you first came across the brand because you didn't start the brand, your co-founder started it. And you came across it after the birth of your third child. What what was it that you loved about Paper Crane? Um, so back then there was, it was like a, a like fashion mums community on Instagram and Paper Crane kept popping up as one of the brands that all the sort of mums wanted their kids, you know, to have these booties. And I just loved it. I mean, Kate is so incredibly talented at creating these eye-popping designs, the fabrics that she used and just the personality that she injected into the brand. You know, everyone wanted to have these baby booties for their kids. And I like, I'm drawn to things that are different. If everybody has something, I'm not interested in it. Um, And these were really, really hard to come by. So as much as everyone loved them, not that many people actually had them because they would literally sell out in 15 seconds. So (laughs) I I just adored them. And I managed to secure a pair when my youngest was, I think she was about four months old. And they were these really cool, like Wonder Woman comic book baby booties. And it it was love at first sight. The product, the quality of the product actually matched the amazingness as well. So when did you decide you should approach Kate about expanding the brand and what was the impetus that made you go, I want to be part of this? It was really once I got my hands on that first pair of shoes, I approached her straight away, not so much about partnering up, but more like I wanted to know more about her. I wanted to know, uh, you know, how she was running the business and, you know, just to get to know her. I was interested in her mind and her as a person and I found it so fascinating and um, actually, while I was doing my articles at um, the law firm, I was also, I was pregnant with my first child, but I was also studying fashion design part-time on the weekends. So I always had this love of, you know, fashion and design and creation. So I was interested in her on that level, like fr- from a designer's perspective. So we just sort of, you know, struck up a, a conversation with message back and forth and um, sort of built a friendship first. And when my, my little one, it was her first birthday and we were having a Mexican fiesta theme and Kate created these one-off, you know, little cactus PKs for her for the theme. (laughs) And it was when I went to pick those up from her that I said, look, I've had this little knot in my stomach ever since I came across your brand and it won't go away. The idea won't go away. And I, I really think that I could like help to turn this into a global footwear brand. I have ideas. I I think if we team up, we can make this something big. And that's when that conversation happened and and she agreed. And that's how we went. So you mentioned as well um, the cult-like following of the brand. You know, PKs were really sought after baby shoes. You saw the opportunity there. But Kate's process was obviously very, very labour-intensive, everything you know, created at home by her, the hand sewing, her at the machine. So it 
if you're going to scale the brand to a global company, what happened next? What was the first step? So this was this was sort of, you know, the interesting part because it was obviously such a risk and I had three children. So uh, what I decided to do was, okay, uh, so I'm going to research how to make shoes, how to run a shoe brand. Like there was zero knowledge, by the way, on my part. Um, and so what I was doing was running the firm, having the kids and then you know, at night doing all that research. And at the initial stages, we sort of wanted to keep it in-house, keep it here in Australia. But we discovered very quickly that the footwear business here used to boom and it was really well-renowned, you know, around the world. But in the 80s, that all sort of collapsed and everything moved offshore because obviously it became much cheaper to manufacture there. So it all disappeared from here. Um, But I had this idea, why don't I approach the head of footwear design at RMIT University? It's the only course of its kind. So I I literally cold called the guy and amazingly he was like, yeah, come right in, like literally come in now if you can. And he so generously gave me his time and gave me the business cards of a couple of the old school shoe gurus from the 80s who still lived here in Melbourne. So I went and visited these guys and you know, they're the ones who eventually led us to our agent in Vietnam, who we still use to this day. She's like a member of our family now. And um, yeah, that's how that's up. But at the same time, I was running the firm and also we were continuing. So Kate was, was still sewing the shoes and I was going there at least twice a week to fold them, you know, turn them out, package them, take them, send them. And we decided to sort of experiment with a hardier sole as an interim step um, and we decided on suede, but Kate's machine couldn't handle it. So I approached a like a sheepskin slipper factory and that their machines could do it. So I'd go and get the uppers from Kate, drive them, like she's in Werribee, then I'd drive them to this factory in Moorabbin, they'd sew it, then I'd take them back to Kate, we'd turn them out, we'd package them and so that's how it all started, really running the firm, doing this research, keeping Paper Crane going all at the same time. And then I think, you know, we we travelled to Vietnam in late 2016 and that's when it became apparent to me that I can't continue. Like I've won, I want to take this risk and I'm going to fully leap into this now full time and that's when I wound down the law firm and jumped into this. It's very hands-on. You did lots of research, and it's uh, and then obviously you go to Vietnam and you meet the manufacturers. And you how do you, how do you kind of establish that relationship with the manufacturer and understand and realize that they're sort of like the right one for you? And you kind of go right. We're fundamentally changing this business from a bit more of a home home run kind of business to something that has the potential to be to be global, which it has become. Yeah. So look, when I spoke to the agent initially um, and explained to her, you know, how we got there, what our desires were, that we wanted to be hands-on, that, you know, the ethical setup of the factory mattered to us. She presented me with probably four or five different options and we, I vetted them. Like that was an extensive process as well. And we narrowed it down. And on that first trip, we went to a couple of factories, but why we chose our first factory, by the way, we've moved on since, but why we chose this first factory was they used to operate in Australia. So they moved to Vietnam when the footwear industry collapsed. And that was big for us because 
the guy who ran it, he's Vietnamese, but he lived in Australia for most of his life um, until the industry collapsed. And he had family still in Australia. So culturally, we had an in, you know, we had an understanding and, you know, the language barrier didn't exist because he was fluent in English. And that was really helpful as well. And it's sort of just, it, it almost like it was supposed to happen. That factory really aligned with us and they were willing to give us a go. It was a huge initial outlay, but what they did was they said, we'll absorb the initial costs into the price of the shoes. So, which was an amazing opportunity for us because once we ordered the shoes, all the costs were absorbed into that rather than the huge upfront, you know, because to create a mould is at least a thousand Australian dollars per size. And we have quite an extensive size range. So um, we worked really, really well together. And I think that we had this, you know, cultural commonality really helped. When figuring out like the economies of scale and the, the pricing and all that sort of thing and how you're going to make that work, how different was that for you thinking about how you make it work from a law firm? Well, yeah, I had to learn quite quickly because obviously law is a service industry. So you make your calculations based on, you know, the the time estimate that you think that file will take. Um, and sometimes you get it wrong. Sometimes you end up spending way more time on it. But this is a little bit um, I guess more and less straightforward because you can you've got you've got numbers to work with. It's less abstract. So I had to sort of reframe my mind to get around. You know, again, that was this whole thing. We didn't know anything about the industry or how to run a footwear business. So it was all research. I mean, I was drafting all our legal contracts. I was running, you know, uh, registering our trademarks, and so I had that knowledge. But I had basic accounting knowledge and bookkeeping knowledge. So I was doing that as well, but the rest was just, okay, how do you set an RRP? Get on Google, read, read articles about how businesses do it, you know, speak to people um, about formulae we could possibly use. And I must say that, you know, as we've grown as a business, so many people in the business world have been so generous and helpful and willing to give us a leg up and that's just been incredible for us. You know, I've had people give us um, sample contracts they've used for distributors just to help me when I draft our own, or here's a formula I've used for RRPs that has really worked for me and just things like that. So it's a lot of learning, researching, instinct and and help and luck, I guess. Sounds like it was a little bit of a trial by fire initially. <laughs> <You're> like, ah! <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. So if you don't mind if we take a little bit more of a, a detour into your personal journey, because maybe about three or four years into working with Paper Crane, you're at a party and you met a woman whose child was wearing Paper Crane shoes. And <laughs> yes, yes, I believe it was a life changing moment for you. Can you tell <laughs> us what happened? Yeah, sure. Well, um, in the lead up, to meeting her, um, my best friend and I actually, so this had been going on a few years before I met my partner, my then best friend and I sort of developed non-platonic feelings for one another. And that was a completely new experience for me because I'd never previously experienced that. I'd been with my then husband, you know, my whole life. I met him when I was 17. He was my first and only, we had our three children together, um, 
but something always for me um, just didn't feel right. I absolutely adored him and we built this life together, but something within me, and I think that started from really when I was a teenager, just something didn't feel right. And I guess when my best friend and I, um, when I started to realize I was feeling non-platonic feelings for her and that, you know, that was reciprocated, that all of a sudden did feel right and shone a light on, it sort of answered every question I'd ever had. But that sort of wasn't to be because when I found out, you know, when all these feelings started to come to the surface, I was very honest with my now ex-husband and my family and everyone in my life knew it was quite a journey for a few years that the two of us went on trying to understand what was going on. And just before I met my current partner, I sort of had sat down with my best friend, with my ex-husband and said, I don't know what this is. I don't know if I, I don't know if I'm gay. I don't know what's going on, but all I know is that something inside me is pulling me in the direction and I need to understand this. I need to know what on earth is going on and I need to explore this because it's 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 insanely strong. It's like I can't breathe and I just I need to be able to breathe. That's the best way I can describe it. And literally a couple of days after having that conversation with them, I took my youngest to this kindergarten party and <laughs> met my current partner. And I truly, um, firstly, I didn't know that she's gay and she didn't know that I'm gay. Uh, it was just an instant connection without knowing anything really about one another. And only later on did we you know, did I tell her what I was going through? Did I find out that she's gay? And, you know, that was just an instant thing. And now it's, it, you know, I sort of told my now ex-husband and, you know, we sort of, we, we split up very soon after that because it became apparent that I think this is starting to answer all the questions and all the things that haven't been right inside me. And, you know, so we've since separated, but we're, we're very amicable. So we, raising the kids together. We have completely joint custody on the weekend. You know, my little one, she just turned eight and she's Hamilton obsessed. So my ex-husband <laughs> and I planned a surprise. We took her and her siblings to Hamilton with our current partners as well. We went like all as one big modern family. And <laughs> so we're sort of like that now. And it's been amazing. My, my partner, she's incredible and yeah, as you said, her child was wearing PKs to this party where we met, which is, I guess, quite crazy. And it's just been an amazing journey, really. Well, Zara, thank you for your honesty and, and for sharing that with us. It's a beautiful story and I love, love that PKs was part of it. Uh, we'll have a little bit <laughs> more you. from Zara coming up after this very short commercial break. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. So before the break, we had been talking about the moment when you realized you were gay. Uh, you were a mum of three, you'd married your childhood sweetheart. What was it like navigating that time coming out to family and friends? Because obviously you've gone through 
you go through the personal journey, you go through it privately with your partner and then, or then partner, then about, you know, navigating other people in your, in your life, uh, in your community. How did that, what, what was that like? Um, look, it was big because, you know, we had these very big feelings, my partner and I, and, you know, we needed to deal with that respectfully because we were both still in relationships. So that sort of needed to be navigated. And she has two children as well. So there were five little stakeholders in this situation, you know, without even considering our now exes. So I think the first step was just trying to figure out how on earth we're going to do this and how we're going to tackle this. And very soon after COVID hit, so we had lockdowns on top of it all and, you know, moving apart, you know, selling houses, moving to different houses, moving the kids. So that that really was the focus, just making sure all these people we care so much about are okay. And they were because we were very open and honest and understanding that what's happening is going to change so many people's lives and possibly hurt people. But, you know, we, we had to address that. And really everyone else, everyone else was incredible. My family were absolutely amazing. I can't say they were overly shocked. I mean, nobody thought I was gay. Nobody ever thought I was gay, but after everything that I'd been through with my, you know, then best friend over the years leading up to it, no one was overly shocked that this had happened because I'd been honest with them all along. So they were incredible. My mum in particular, um, initially we had a bird nesting arrangement. So, you know, the kids stayed in the original house and we'd take turns moving in and out, my ex-husband and I. So when he was in the house, I would stay at my mum's and my current partner was there with me too. And this was at the very, very beginning. And my mum just took us in. And those were some of the best days of our lives. Truly. We had so much fun there. It was so warm. And I've got two incredible sisters who are just so supportive as well. And we're a family of all women, by the way. My son is the only boy in seven generations. And it was just a whole <laughs> lot of like love, girl power. You know, it was, everyone was very welcoming. So we've been really fortunate and friends were exactly the same. And the whole community, I mean, I don't know what people are saying behind closed doors. And to be honest, doesn't really bother me, but the way that they're acting to our faces out. So our five kids all go to the same school and, you know, we'll walk in holding hands, just being ourselves and people, it's just business as usual, really. So it hasn't been a huge scandal or life changing. The kids are great to them. You know, I don't like this generation gay, whatever. It's not, it's not even a thing. So, you know, they're really embracing and, and we're very, very lucky because I think we've managed to overcome the challenges that, you know, a big separation like this brings about and, and come out of it, you know, unsca- relatively unscathed, to be honest. That is fortunate because it's not always everyone's experience of coming out. No. Yep. I definitely appreciate that. I must say when we watch shows, you know, we've watched a couple of shows recently where there's sort of a gay story there. And when you see things that people have gone through, I actually usually get quite emotional and I feel so blessed, you know, so connected to gay people of past generations and so blessed that I haven't necessarily shared their experience. And I'm really grateful for that. 
Can I, so you mentioned your community. You're um, you're very active in the Jewish community, from what I hear, and. Like Jewish and gay does not necessarily go hand in hand. It's, it's often quite a complex area to navigate as well. So what's the experience been like for you? I must say, actually, so the community, I went to an orthodox school my whole life from kinder to 12 and um, went to school with very, very religious people who amazingly, by the way, have also been very warm and embracing and business as usual. But sort of the community that I'm mainly a part of is quite liberal, sort of the more modern Jewish community and our kids go to a liberal school and there's there's quite a few same-sex parents and, like, believe me when I say for most people it seems to be a non-issue for most people in my world and, you know, I live in a really Jewish area and my girlfriend and I you know, we're always seen walking down the streets hand in hand, just sort of being ourselves. And I never get the vibe that people feel like it's a big deal. I just don't. And, you know, at first I was like, am I just really naive? Like I was really expecting people to whisper and turn heads and stare. And But it literally has not ever once been like that. So, yeah, I, I really do feel like the Jewish community has been very much business as usual about the whole thing, well, the community that I'm part of anyway. Yeah, look, it's come a very long way. I should declare my hand here. You have another Jewish and gay person on the line with you today. Hello, hello. Uh, hello. <laughs> a shout out to all the Jewish gays. Uh, <laughs> yeah, look, it has come a long way. And, um, you know, I thought there's, we could we could dive deep into that if we could dive much deeper into that, but we do want to bring it back to your <laughs> business journey. It's just it is always interesting hearing because we're, we're firm believers at Koshi's Business Builders that we like to talk about the stories of the people behind businesses. So it is actually it is all part of your world and all part of your worldview and and what you what you believe in. It, it, everything it's all very interconnected. Yep, exactly. So can you? Um, I guess kind of parlaying that into talking about. PK again, and the I guess as a very as a purpose driven brand as well, you've got sustainability and corporate social responsibility as you know a big part of your your business and your brand. Why is that important to you and Kate to have have that positive impact? We're just that's just how we're both wired. To be honest, we this business has never been for us about making money. That's never been um, the primary focus. It's always about bringing something positive to the world. So I'm not sure if you're aware, but we're actually a barefoot, minimal footwear brand. That's what we do. And what that means is we are creating shoes that are optimal for feet. So unfortunately, over the decades, fashion has determined how shoes look rather than what we need for our feet. And um, so when I'm, you know, we're talking heels, we're talking pointy toes that create bunions and all sorts of awful things. And most people don't, it's yeah. I mean, most people don't realize that these heavy, tight heeled shoes that they're wearing are responsible for all sorts of referred bodily pain that they're feeling. They have no idea, knee problems, hip problems, back problems. So, you know, our shoes, what we focus on is we call it the four F's. Our shoes are flat, foot shaped, feather light and flexible. And that is optimal. So, you you know, when kids start walking, you hear this whole thing um, in order to 
create optimal gait and muscular development for their systems. They should be barefoot as much as possible and any shoes they wear should just be for protection, light, flexible, thin. And then for some reason that changes and there's absolutely no logical reason for that to ever change. If we all agree that being as close to barefoot as possible is optimal for your muscles and for your gait and for how you walk and how you move. Why is it any different as you develop? And so, you know, that's what we're all about. But the problem is that when you think of foot healthy shoes, let's be honest, you're thinking ugly, right? (laughs) You're thinking, "Uh oh, I don't want that. Um, so what Kate and I have tried to do is to bridge that gap between fashion and function. Um, so we've tried to become the first barefoot footwear brand that creates high fashion, fun, funky, quirky, unique shoes that you'll actually love to wear, but are also at the same time amazing for you. So where that's what our business was about, uh, creating a better alternative for people. And then that obviously quite easily segued into but also we want our company as a whole to make a positive difference in other ways. As we say, we want to make a positive footprint on the world. And so we've worked together with heaps of charitable organisations and artists and done lots of collaborations where we donate proceeds to these charities and it, it really means the world to us. We'll never stop doing that. I notice you donate to Minus 18, which I think is an awesome charity. So just shout out to you. Yeah, the LGBT yeah. charity, yeah, it's fantastic. They're absolutely amazing. That is such an important organisation and, you know, we will continue to reach out to them and see how we can collaborate more and more in the future because they do amazing work. Anyway, back on your footwear journey, you just spoke about wanting to make them fun and fashionable and, you know, great fit. So... Since moving the manufacturing to Vietnam, where you now have all these options to expand the product range, but but also its distribution, how did you decide what markets you wanted to test and where you would go next? Basically, the brand um, in Kate's days, it started out as an e-commerce brand. So it was marketed via social media and sold via the website, papercrane.com.au. And our journey at first was, you know, what we thought is we'll just continue. We'll build brand awareness. We'll increase the offerings and um, just continue to sell via social media and the e-commerce platform. And that was our focus. And then that hugely exploded during COVID because, as you know, online shopping all over the world just went gung-ho. But we found that not only did that happen, but we had an enormous explosion of stores, overseas stores approaching us saying, we would like to stock your shoes. When can we order? How do we order? And we never really turned our minds to incorporating a wholesale arm into the business or, or, you know, that kind of distribution at all. We were just focusing on make the products, ship them here to Australia, Um, and mind you, I say we started out by these shoes would come to my garage and I'd pack the orders in my garage and then send them out. And then we outgrew the garage and moved it to a storage unit near my house. And then it became like, actually, like I can't spend 10 hours breaking my backpacking orders anymore. It just, it doesn't make sense. So we outsourced it. We have a warehouse. So that was our focus, managing the growth 
of the e-commerce side and then comes wholesale um, out of the blue and it was purely word of mouth and organic. We actually, we don't really market ourselves ever, even on e-commerce. It's just social media posts essentially. Um, And that was once again, a whole new learning experience. How do we now create global orders, not just for ourselves, but, and, you know, but for different companies all over the world and learning about customs clearances. And uh, it was a, once again, flying by the seat of our pants. So, you know, I took that on and even now we've just made a huge development in that as well. So we now have enough European shops stocking us to try and, uh, because what happened during COVID was, you know, demand grew, but the supply chain imploded. Factories were shutting. There were lockdowns everywhere. Things were getting caught in ports. Shipments were delayed. And and it was, it was an absolute nightmare to be honest. So, you know, we've now tried to work, you know, so pivot from that and to develop a smoother and more efficient system, which makes us an even better um, company to work with in terms of, you know, if you're an overseas store and that's what we've been focusing on. So to be honest, a lot of the stuff that's happened has been um, organic and we've had to learn quite quickly. And I think this has been our year where we've decided to get on the front foot, to start actually engaging. (laughs) Exactly, pun intended, intended. get on the front foot. (laughs) Yeah, so we're sort of trying now to be uh, more strategic in in our own business development and it's been incredible. Well, I have no doubt you'll be putting your best foot forward. Oh, I had to, I had to. I'm sorry, Sess. I'm sorry for for everything that's ahead of you in the, in the coming year. Um, to wrap up, uh, what advice do you have for other small business owners around, you know, keeping your cool amid what can often feel like um, an overwhelming whirlwind, you know, like learning all these new um, skills and going, oh, my God, I am, a, I feel like a deer in the headlights, you know. Well, I basically think that the best advice, there's a few, but, you know, trust your instinct because you're always going to hear no's. There's always going to be external no's. That's just how it is. Um, And you've got to sort of build the muscle to know when, like know when to listen to people, but also know when to ignore people. It's a really important skill. And you so you have to trust your own instinct because there have been many times where we've had an idea and we've heard no and our, all our insides are saying yes, so we've pushed pushed against it and gone with it and it's worked out. And other times where people say no and you know they're actually right. So it's learning to trust your instinct, listen to others, and really trust yourself. Um, and I guess that people have to remember that none of us know everything when it comes to running a business. So you have to be prepared to learn as you go and make mistakes and learn the hard way and really just keep swimming because it's overwhelming and often things can feel so insurmountable. So just keep going, listen to your instinct. And there's no such thing as failure because things that don't work out the way that you necessarily wanted them to often teach you the best lessons, if you stand back and learn from them, like almost 100% of the time that leads to overall improvement, whether it be in efficiencies or sales, the lessons learned the hard way are often the most important ones. That's what I found. I think you're absolutely right there. That what you learn from failure is what makes you grow. Definitely. That's all we have time for today. And you can find out more about Zara's labor of love 
papercrane at papercrane.com.au. That's crane with a K. Zara Cooper, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to First Act. Now join us next week for another fantastic First Act conversation. We can't wait to bring it to you. Bye.